This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and of course I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or check out askbillnye.com. You can check me out on all the social media that the kids use. You can find out about our upcoming guests. And today, once again, I am joined by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Corey, greetings. Bill S. Nye, it is good to be here. Bill, you know, um, I've known you a long time, and you always inspire me with this breakdown that you do about the two big questions that everybody wonders about, that everybody is The two big by. questions, Corey. Where did we come from, and are we alone? And one of the ways to get some answers is to do archaeology in space. Go out there and start looking for things that talk about our origin, talk about how we got all the stuff for life here on Earth and where the Earth came from. And we've got somebody on this podcast who's doing that. That's exactly right, my friend. Our guest today is Dr. Dante Loretta. Dr. Loretta is a professor of planetary science and cosmochemistry at the University of Arizona, the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory, and he's the leader of NASA's OSIRIS-REx Asteroid Sample Return Mission. Dr. Dante Loretta, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Dante? Absolutely, Bill. Thanks. Thank it's you. great to be here. It's oh, so, so cool, great to you know. Have you. I was at the launch of OSIRIS-REx, and OSIRIS-REx is a mission going to an asteroid named Bennu, which is Egyptian for the Heron God. The asteroid got its name by a guy who was nine years old at the time, Mike Puzio, and he named the asteroid because he had just done better research about Egyptian mythology, and the head of NASA, Charlie Bolden, got to meet Mike. And I'm pretty sure he got to meet you, Dante, didn't he? Uh, I actually did not get a chance to meet him at the launch. I was in the control room, so I was really uh, geeking out, enjoying all the rocket telemetry. So I didn't get to meet Michael. I have talked to him extensively and his family. They've been big fans of the mission. 
and uh, we correspond regularly. So anyway, let's start with this. Who came up with Osiris Rex? Help us uh, out there. Yeah, the, the name uh, is entirely my fault. So uh, it's it, there's a little <laughs> bit of a convoluted history. So it's a mouthful of an acronym. It is, and I love it. <laughs> so uh, really, I was brought onto this program in 2004. As, as you know, these missions are kind of lifetime commitments and uh, the principal investigator at the time was Dr. Michael Drake, who was my boss and the director of the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory where I work. And they were going into the proposal phase. NASA selects these missions competitively. I like to compare it to the NCAA basketball tournament where teams from all over the country go in. Usually a couple dozen groups are trying to win this one NASA flight opportunity. And Mike called me up and he said he wanted me to be the deputy principal investigator. And my job was to define the science program for an asteroid sample return. And so why did you want to do an asteroid sample return? So I sat down and I asked myself that exact question. And I wrote down four words. The first thing I wrote down was origins, right? When we go to asteroids, we're going back to the oldest geologic samples in the solar system. How do we know for sure that those rocks are for sure older than, say, the rocks in my backyard? Uh, because we have fragments of them that land on Earth as meteorites, and we have techniques we call geochronology, where we look at radioactive isotopes and we look at the isotopes that they decay into, and they're basically clocks inside rocks. And these clocks are ticking away, and they're changing from one element to the other, and we look at those ratios. We know the rate they do that very precisely because we measure that in the laboratory, and when we look at a certain type of meteorite called chondrites, there are minerals in there that are consistent with what you would expect the first minerals in the solar system to be. Very high temperature, uh, kind of like ceramics. We call them calcium aluminum rich inclusions. And we go in and we date their age using uranium lead systems, which uh, persist for billions of years. And we get a very nice age, 4.567 billion years We've never dated anything in our solar system older than that. All right. So hang on. So when you say uranium lead system, you're talking about the radiochemistry, the radioactive decay where uranium somehow ends up as lead. So uranium decaying to lead, it's a nuclear process. It doesn't care what kind of gravity field you're in. It doesn't care about the electric magnetic environment. As far as we know, they don't care about anything except kicking out there. Uh, alpha particles and turning into other elements. And that's all they do. And they happily do that consistently for billions of years. And we use the uranium lead system to date rocks on Earth. We use it to date rocks from the moon. And we use it to date these minerals from meteorites, which come from asteroids. And of all those systems, the asteroids are the oldest. Uh, so I, I want to find out about this particular asteroid. What kind of an asteroid is this? And is this a, an old asteroid, a young asteroid? What can you tell about its history and where it came from? We have done a lot of work to understand where Bennu came from. Bennu is currently a near-Earth asteroid, and that's an unstable place for it to be because it's, that it's what we call, good. it's in the cosmic pinball game, right? It's moving around. It's doing close approaches to the Earth. It is a potentially hazardous asteroid. It may hit the Earth in about 150 years. It's one ah. of the reasons we're interested in it. And so when you get into the inner solar system as a small body like Bennu, which is only 500 meters in diameter, you're probably going to end up falling into the sun or crashing into one of the planets, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, or Mars. And so we know Bennu hasn't been where it is right now for a very long time. And we know, we understand 
orbital dynamics very well. Newton figured it out. Kepler figured it out. Those laws still apply. And we can run it backwards. It's kind of complicated, but we can say it most likely came from the main asteroid belt, where there's millions of asteroids still in existence today, and it kind of wandered into the inner solar system. And the main asteroid belt is between Mars and Jupiter? Correct. Yeah, the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. And the reason those rocks are so old is because Jupiter is sitting out there beyond the main asteroid belt, and it's a massive gravity uh, perturber, and it's stirring up the asteroid belt constantly. It won't let them accrete into a planet. Uh, If Jupiter wasn't there, those asteroids probably would have swept up and become a fifth planet, terrestrial planet in the inner solar system. So one of the things that I just like to remind everybody that's amazing, even if you're a piece of sand, you have gravity. And so if if they are in this asteroid belt, these pieces of sand or meteors or meteorites, rather, or whatever they are, uh, they're going to accumulate, uh, stick together. They're going to accrete. Right. But you're saying Jupiter just keeps shaking it up and they can't become a planet. That's right. And it's been doing that for billions of years. It's just been messing with the asteroid belt. But somehow... Uh, Bennu, this asteroid, formerly 1999 RQ-36, got nudged, and it's fallen in closer to the sun. That's right. What nudged it? It's a couple of things happened. So when we trace it back, uh, we it looks like it was part of an asteroid family. And asteroid families are thousands of fragments from one of a larger asteroid that was shattered in what we call a catastrophic disruption. Because Bennu is so small... There's another force besides gravity acting on it. We call this the Yarkovsky force. And it's fascinating. Bennu is a dark asteroid. One of the reasons we were interested in it, because to our origins investigation, we wanted to find the carbon. Yeah, it's like like darker than a lump of charcoal, right? That's right. Yeah, it's one of the darkest objects in the solar system, which made it really exciting for us as scientists. Uh, And what happens because it's so dark, sunlight hits the surface. Most of it gets absorbed and heats it up. Think of a parking lot in a hot Arizona summer day or California summer day. Uh, and then it rotates into the nighttime and that that energy is released back into space as heat, just pushing that heat off into space. And that acts like a thruster and it changes the orbital velocity or orbital speed of the asteroid. In Bennu's case, it's like a break. It's slowing the asteroid down. And when you slow an object's orbit down, it shrinks and it starts to move into the inner solar system. So that's why Bennu migrated from the main asteroid belt into the inner solar system. It was part of a larger asteroid, which is pretty immune to the Yarkovsky effect. We're talking something on a 100-kilometer diameter scale. It got shattered. It made all these small pieces. The Yarkovsky effect really starts to act on those small asteroids and, and moves them either into the inner solar system or towards the outer solar system. It's all so cool. So here's another thing to keep in mind, everybody, is when you break apart out there, you're not going to be sitting still. Uh, That is to say, you're not going to present the same face to the sun all the time. You're always going to have a little tumbly, rotation-y something or other. And so that Yarkovsky then can get heat on one side and radiate it out into space. Okay, so hang on, hang on, hang on. The O in Osiris-Rex's origin... Right. What are the other three words that you're all hot for? Uh, we're interested in spectroscopy. 
So we want to understand the composition of these asteroids. We there's millions of asteroids in the solar system. And uh, we're not going to send spacecraft to every one of those to understand what they're made out of, like Osiris Rex is doing. Well, hold on. How, how many near-Earth asteroids are there? Like, uh, well, this, over 10,000 near-Earth asteroids. Yeah, so uh, of all kinds of sizes. Not, Bennu is uh, on the larger side. It's kind of in the middle. Okay. Uh, but there's over 10,000, and we're finding more of them all the time. Uh, and so we want to know what they're made out of, and we use a technique called spectroscopy. Basically, you point a telescope at the asteroid, you break the light up through a prism into its different colors, and you look at which ones are bright and which ones are dark, and it tells you about the minerals on the surface, in theory. But in reality, you want to go and you want to get a piece of it, and you want to say, okay, these are what the minerals really are. This is what the spectra really looks like. And now we can really use that technique to explore these thousands and thousands of asteroids across the One test is worth a thousand expert opinions. If you have a piece of it, then you know for sure it's spectral reflection and then you can compare that to the data that you get with telescopes. Okay, that's two. That's right. origin All right. so we got spectroscopy. The o, we got through the S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, we'll go to the R because that's how the order it went in. The R is for resources. So when I was writing this down 16 years ago, I was a total sci-fi geek, still am. And uh, I thought, hey, if we get out to this asteroid and we bring a piece of it back, that's the first step to asteroid mining. That's like your spec sample. Uh, and I really hoped that that would start to take off and people would get interested in it. And that's been happening. There's a lot of companies that, that formed and went bankrupt. And now other new companies are forming and they're trying to <laughs> pursue asteroid mining. Platinum yeah. from outer space. Well, yeah, so that's, <laughs> not to digress, but what would you mine from an asteroid? What's an asteroid good for? I did a lot of work with, with some of the early asteroid mining companies to answer that exact question. And Bill mentioned platinum, and that sounds really good. If Bennu was sitting on the surface of the Earth, it would be a platinum mine. No doubt about it. It's got a lot of platinum. But in reality, we don't need that much platinum. We, we've got enough platinum on Earth right now. And so what we're really looking for is, well, what do you need in space? And if you guys know all about space exploration. The one thing you really need in space is you need fuel, right? You need to get places. You need energy to move your spacecraft. Uh, and the best fuel that you could produce from an asteroid is liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And so you want an asteroid that's loaded in water. And H2O. So, yeah, exactly. Basic molecule all over the place. Some asteroids have it. Others are really dry. Uh, fortunately, Bennu is loaded in water. That's one of our big science results so far. It's not ice and it's not liquid water on the surface. It's clay minerals that at reacted with water at some point in Bennu's history. And all that water got locked up into the mineral structure. So I think so Bennu, it was once part of a wet planet or, or protoplanet. Yeah, Bennu was definitely part of an ancient water world uh, where you had massive hydrothermal circulation, very hot water moving through rocks and altering them. And when you do that, you produce clay minerals and you produce other minerals. Uh, one of the minerals we've discovered most recently are carbonates, uh, which you're familiar with on Earth as calcites. They form in your pipes and on your faucets as these white deposits that you clean with lime away to get rid of. But they're, they're uh, like salts that when the water evaporates, they leave behind this material. Carbonate is really exciting for us because it's got carbon in it. And carbon is one of the elements we're really excited about as well. Okay, so the old saying, every, every rock tells a story, right? So you're telling me from here, from Earth, you're looking at this thing millions of kilometers away, millions of miles away. And you can tell that it was once part of an icy world that had a hot 
area, hot core, Hydra, hot hydrothermal springs that of made some kind. geysers. You can tell all that from here. No, we hoped that would be the case. We learned that with the spacecraft instruments. So we got to Bennu in late 2018, and we spent all of 2019 mapping it in fantastic detail with our cameras, and we have multiple spectrometers, and we have now really nailed that idea that it was part of a water world, that it had large hydrothermal systems, and that deposited these clay minerals and these carbonate minerals. So we had a suspicion from Earth. That's why the spectroscopy and the spectral interpretation part of the mission is so important. We've confirmed that with our remote sensing instruments, but we still don't know for sure, because what we got to do is we got to get a piece of that rock back to the Earth, and then we can say, yep, those are the minerals that we inferred from the Earth and we inferred from the spacecraft instruments. All right, that sounds so, like a great idea. You should grab a piece of this asteroid and bring it back to Earth. Are, are, are yes. you uh, thinking about doing that? We are doing more than thinking about it. We are getting ready yeah, to so go how, in. How, yeah, let's talk about how that works. <laughs> yeah, so we have a device on the spacecraft we call our TAGSAM, the Touch and Go Sample Acquisition Mechanism. And it's basically you do love a, your acronyms. We love them. Oh, yeah, we love them. And I especially, I'm one of the worst. It's basically a space vacuum cleaner. Uh, the, the concept is very similar. A uh, vacuum cleaner works by creating a low-pressure area inside the device, and it pulls air through a filter and catches all the dirt. Well, but here on Earth, you've got high-pressure air around your vacuum cleaner. That's right. That's right. So to be a space vacuum cleaner, you got to bring the air with you. So we have three bottles of compressed nitrogen gas. Uh, and as soon as we touch down on the surface, the only thing from the spacecraft that makes contact with the asteroid surface is an air filter. Basically looks exactly like the device you would put on the carburetor of a 57 Chevy. Same technology, same idea. That's going to get pushed down onto the surface. We're going to open up one of our high-pressure gas bottles and we're going to create a high-pressure region underneath that air filter, and it's going to grab all of the rocks and dirt, and it's going to push them up into our filter. So it's like a vacuum cleaner in reverse. It's a leaf blower. That's right. Yeah, it's a leaf blower. <laughs> all right, so so how, how, much, how much asteroid are you hoping to get? 60 grams, or about two ounces, and that's what we need to do all of the measurements that we identified uh, even before we launched the spacecraft. The engineers, as you know, they like to add margin. So the scientists said, we need 60 grams. The engineers said, we're going to make sure this thing can pick up 150 grams guaranteed. And its capacity is 2,000 grams or two kilograms of material. So I'm hoping we pack that filter full of material and bring that, that massive uh, sample back home. Okay. Okay. So speaking of sample, the OSIRIS, we have origin resource spectroscopy. What's the fourth word? Security. Security. So we are worried about Bennu as a potentially hazardous asteroid. It has a non-negligible chance of impacting the Earth. Prior to launch, the odds were about 1 in 2,700. And the biggest uncertainty is this Yarkovsky effect that we're talking about. How does the energy move through the surface of the asteroid? How does it absorb the sunlight? How does it radiate the thermal heat? And how does that change the orbit uh, we're going to need to know that to accurately predict its path into the future and determine what is the real chance it's going to hit us. Stick around for more science rules after this. Yeah. 
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Science Rules is back. Hey, Bill and Corey. I have a question about NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission. From my astronomy days, I learned that asteroids are almost like piles of rubble where they have gravitational force and they pull other smaller asteroids and meteorites into them. And from visiting Bennu, it actually looks like this is very much the case. If an asteroid was on a collision course with Earth, how would NASA or another space agency go about blowing up one of these asteroids? Where is their weakest spot? Were we studying that when we visited Bennu? Okay, security. Let's. Uh, can you help us out with the security here? How do we blow it up? It's a. That's a great question. I think the the first question is, do you even want to blow it up? It's, it's basically you're turning it into a shotgun blast as opposed to a cannonball, and neither one of those are pleasant for the Earth to get struck with. Uh, what you really want to do is you want to get enough advanced knowledge that it's coming to change its mind, <laughs> meaning change its orbit. It's like you don't really want to hit the Earth. You would rather miss the Earth. So you would want to get ahead of the, the problem and start to slowly change its trajectory so that you avoid the collision altogether. Because the caller's right. Blowing up a rubble pile is not an easy thing to do. It's going to absorb most of that energy very quickly and it's going to just collapse back onto itself. So it, you're going to kind of disperse it, and then it's going to reaccumulate. So you can't really blow it up. You really want to get it out of the way. Nudge it. Yeah. All right. And so how do you do that? How do you get it out of the way? My favorite plan is to harness the Yarkovsky effect, right? So the Yarkovsky effect imparts a thrust to the asteroid based on the direction that it's emitting its thermal radiation. And you should be able to control that. You should be able oh, to. Oh, yeah, Corey, don't you think we can control that? Sure. You know, I would probably paint it with like some titanium dioxide or something like that. What, what would you do, Dante? I would do exactly the same thing. I would bring some material that's very bright. You know, we have done a f fantastic job mapping this asteroid. So it's a gift to the future. It, some other group of people are going to have to figure out how to prevent Bennu from hitting the Earth. Uh, but we will give them a shape model that we got from our laser altimeter, which our Canadian partners provided to the program, at five centimeter spatial resolution and two centimeter vertical precision. This so, is palm you know, of your hand kind of thing. That's right. Over 500 meter diameter asteroid. So you could put all that into a supercomputer model and you could figure out if I painted this area white, if I, made, I left this area dark, the Yarkovsky force would change in the following way and you could direct that thrust. So you would need several decades of advanced warning in order for that. It's a very 
small force, but it acts constantly. So you need it to integrate over a long time period. So hang on, hang on, hang on. When we look at a picture of it, and thank you for those beautiful pictures, it's not spherical. You know, one of the hilarious comedy jokes in any physics class, first we assume a horse is a sphere. We assume a spherical cow, I think, is the standard physics joke. Yeah. (laughs) The mutual gravity of everything, you would expect it to go spherical, but this thing hasn't. That's right. Why is that? And it and it doesn't look like a potato either. So I remember like the early asteroid pictures, like oh, asteroids look like potatoes instead. But it doesn't look like a potato. It looks like a diamond. Yeah, we call it a spinning top. Uh, it's it's spinning and it's got this bulge at the equator. And the reason that is occurring is because it's a pretty small body, five hundred meters in diameter. It's got a very low density. Uh, we, we use units of grams per cubic centimeter. Bennu's about 1.2 grams per cubic centimeter. Your average rock is about three. So it's less than half the density of rocks as we know them here on Earth. So it's just a little more dense than water. Just, yeah, water is one. So this is 20% denser than water and barely a third as dense as a regular rock. Right. So that tells us two things. First of all, that it's consistent with our idea that the rocks themselves contain water. They're clay minerals which expand and have low densities relative to anhydrous rocks, that is rocks with no water inside them. And it's also a pile of rubble. So there's a lot of emptiness inside of it. And so as a result of all that, its gravity field is really low. It's measured in about 10 micro Gs, where one G is the acceleration of gravity at the surface of the Earth. And a micro G is one millionth of that acceleration. And you guys are able to measure that. And we are able to measure that incredibly precisely. How did we do that? Uh, we <laughs> That's a great story in and of itself. So uh, normally what you do is you get a spacecraft to an object and then you track it using the NASA's deep space network while it's transmitting radio waves. And you look at the Doppler shift uh, when the gravitational field of the asteroid pulls the spacecraft towards the antenna. Uh, that's a blue shift. The, the frequency compresses. And when the uh, asteroid pulls the spacecraft away from the Earth, you get a red shift. So you can look at the frequency. Exactly. So we can do that. Uh, but w- it turns out Bennu's mass is so low, it's starting spitting particles off into space. Uh, and we were able to watch these particles. And it's, this has happened hundreds of times. They're coming off at low velocities, and they're going into orbit around Bennu. Some of them are going so low that they're actually hitting the surface of the asteroid and bouncing back into orbit. So Bennu did give us thousands of free gravity probes. So we're able to watch these particles as they spun around the asteroid, and they mapped out the gravitational field. In fact, Corey has a great analog for this. Dante was showing me these animations where you can actually plot the, these spitting rocks uh, bouncing around and, and tracing out these crazy paths around the asteroid. And it just reminded me of that kid experiment you do with a, with a, a magnet and iron filings. You can see the magnetic field around the magnet from the way the iron filings land. And you look, and there's watching all these rocks spinning out of the asteroid the exact same way, only they're measuring the gravitational field. Okay, so hang on. When you say rocks and particles, how big are these things? And what's making them spew? Is it sunlight? Good question. So the sizes are up to like a softball, 10 centimeters or so down to marbles. So pretty Those big are, chunks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> big chunks of stuff flying off this asteroid. Uh, we've got it down to two possibilities that are probably driving this. Uh, one was 
micrometeor impacts. So Bennu's flying through near Earth space. There's all kinds of meteors. We see them in the night sky. They make beautiful shooting stars. Uh, so they're out there all the time, and Bennu is, is crossing their paths, and they strike the surface of the asteroid at really high speeds and create little explosions. So that's almost certainly occurring. The other thing is Bennu is getting heated up and cooled off every 4.3 hours. That's its rotation period. And you're adding a lot of stress to the rocks as a result of that. When something gets hot, it expands. And when it gets cold, it contracts. Every 4.3 hours, those rocks are going through that cycle. And you're building up stress, which ultimately can lead to rock fracturing. So I think both those are kind of at play. Like the thermal stresses are probably prepping the surface, making it very fractured. And then when even a small particle from outer space strikes it, it just flakes off into hundreds and hundreds of particles. Right. You were saying before that the surface gravity is very, very low. If I were standing there on the surface, I could just launch myself into orbit just with a kick. Yeah. One way, one example I like to say just to indicate that is uh, Bennu's the material at the equator is almost in orbit already. So if an astronaut were to land on the equator of Bennu uh, and she reached down and picked up a rock and held it over her head and let go, that rock would be in orbit around the asteroid. So <laughs> the, the equator is almost becoming a ring. It's almost pushing material off the surface and becoming a, a ring around the asteroid. This is your spinning top. And that's the spinning top. Exactly. That's what's happening. Material is getting pushed out at the equator and almost launching off. In fact, if Bennu continues to speed up, we're seeing Bennu's rotation increasing even while we've been there. It, what's speeding up its rotation rate is the same phenomena that is causing the Yarkovsky effect, uh, thermal emission of radiation. Uh, the Yarkovsky effect, the radiation changes its orbital speed in a similar phenomena called the Yorp effect. It increases its rotational speed. And Bennu is spinning faster and faster and faster. Bennu may fly apart in the future, a million years down the road, uh, or it may spin off and create a binary system. We do see a lot of these near-Earth asteroids are actually two asteroids, one orbiting the other one, and they may have gone through this exact process. Almost like a drop. It's, it's like a, this loose thing of rubble that would pull apart into two droplets of separate piles of rubble. That's right. So you got these particles in space that are hitting this asteroid hard enough to knock softballs off of it. Are these particles hitting our beloved OSIRIS-REx spacecraft also? They are. In fact, uh, we have a great picture. Uh, we have a camera on there that's looking at the sample return capsule. We call it the STOCAM. And uh, we took pictures right after we launched, and we saw these cool images. The SRC was there, and it looked perfect. And then What's we took the a picture. SRC? What's the SRC? Uh, the sample return capsule, the capsule that's going to bring the samples back to the surface of the Earth. And then we took a picture a few months later, and there was a divot in the heat shield uh, from getting struck by a meteor in space. And of course, we, you know, we were worried, and we did a risk assessment. And the good news is, we made that heat shield really thick because we knew that these were these things happen in space. Meteors are something you just understand and design your spacecraft to withstand. When we first saw one of these eruptions, we were concerned about the safety to the spacecraft. And we went back and we assessed the energy. And uh, just a little physics speak here, the total energy of the biggest events is on the order of 100 millijoules. So it's, it's kind of, you know, we try to come up with an analogy. It's like the energy of breaking a cracker. And, and when, you know, particles yeah. fly off of a cracker breaking. So we looked at that and we just laughed and we're like, well, our spacecraft can certainly handle that. 
we're going we're gonna to hit this asteroid with a lot of energy when we go in to get the sample. And we designed it to take that blast of rock off the surface right into our face where all of our systems are. And we're like, we can handle that. We can certainly handle these little micro energy events. Okay, so breaking crackers on the surface with our blast of uh, pressurized nitrogen. And we're going to bring stuff back. How, okay, how are we bringing stuff back? Right, you're, you're, about, you're about to do this, and I'd love to hear how you do this. So it's, uh, it's kind of like a cosmic ballet, right? We have to get the spacecraft into a very tight spot on the asteroid. Uh, one of the biggest surprises when we got there was how rugged this surface was. We, we got a lot of things right with our astronomical characterization of the asteroid, but we got something really wrong which was that we thought the surface of this asteroid was beach-like. And I used that word extensively. I stood up in front of the review boards at NASA, and I said, this is going to be easy. Uh, the, we've looked at this asteroid with the Spitzer Space Telescope, with the Arecibo Radio Telescope. We've done all kinds of models. Everything is consistent with this being small particles, centimeter-sized particles, and smaller. And we got so this there. this is going to be a day at the beach. That's right. And that's not what Bennu looks like at all. It is rough and rugged and rocky with giant rocks, 100-meter scale rocks, uh, t- t- tens of meters down to meters. And we struggled to find a location uh, where there was anything smaller than a centimeter and any kind of abundance. And the, the site we chose is called the Nightingale Crater. And it looks like it's a really young crater. And it kind of got it dug down into what appears to be a subsurface layer of finer grain material. So... We How think there young are small is a particles. young crater on a 4.5? Uh, less than 100,000 years old, we think. That's fresh in geology terms, right? <laughs> As I get older and older, that sounds younger and younger. Yeah, you know, I tell my kids that all the time, yeah. <laughs> right? Okay, so you have one very specific spot that you have to aim at on the surface. Yeah. So how do you get there, and then how do you actually aim it and land without messing up your spacecraft? Right. So right now, the spacecraft's on, literally on the other side of the sun. So Bennu's orbit is similar to the Earth's. It's, it's about 1 AU, a little bit more than that, about 1.2 AU from the sun, but on the other side of the solar system. So it's over 2 AU away from Earth, which means that the one-way light time is about 18 minutes. So we send a signal to the spacecraft. It travels across the solar system for 18 minutes. The spacecraft receives it. It does whatever we told it to. It transmits an answer back. And that takes another 18 minutes. So you're looking at about 40 minutes uh, by the time you send a command till you get confirmation that something happened on the spacecraft. And that's so if that, you know exactly what you want to hear. After you receive it, you got to think about it for a minute. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So real-time operations are just not an option. So we had to make the spacecraft a lot smarter. The good news is uh, the only thing you can fix once your spacecraft is in deep space is the software. Because you can send new software up. You've got a computer. It's, it's, it controls all the different subsystems. And we had to rewrite software in order to handle this tight targeting. And we built up a system called natural feature tracking. And so what we have done is we have this amazing shape model of the asteroid from the laser altimeter. We have fantastic imaging from our polycam, a high-resolution camera system. And we picked out several hundred features across the surface of the asteroid. And we, we created a catalog and we sent that catalog up to the spacecraft. And then we built software that says, okay, you're going to leave orbit and you're going to begin your journey down to the surface. That takes about four and a half hours. On a regular basis, take a picture 
and look for features that should be uh, in that picture based on the catalog that we sent you. And you know where exactly they should be if you're going right down the, the proper path. But if you're just a little bit off, you could be a little bit ahead, you could be a little bit behind, you could be to the left or to the right or, or closer to the surface or farther from the surface. And you'll know by how big those features are and where they are in the image. And now use that information to update your position. And then take now, another swimming, one of those. As you're swooping down, sorry to interrupt. As you're swooping yeah. down, how fast are you swooping down? How fast uh, is this everything's happening? really slow. So we're moving at, at centimeters per second to tens of centimeters per second relative to the surface of the asteroid. So you don't have to worry about blur or anything like that. It's a, it's a very slow process. While we're all hurtling around the sun. Right? That's right. The asteroid and the spacecraft are in orbit around the sun, but the relative position, you know, don't forget that, everybody. <laughs> so That's right. They've caught up with this thing, and it's going around the sun at thousands of kilometers an hour. Okay. Yeah, so it figures, it takes the first picture, it says, okay, I'm a little bit off where I'm supposed to be, and I update my position, and then it takes the next picture, and now you've got a change in position, now it's updating its velocity as well. And it's, it's going to do that uh, over a dozen times before it has to fire its engines to start dropping down towards the surface of the asteroid, and it's going to recalculate the thrust. It's going to say, okay, you told me that I should be firing the following engines for the following durations with the following uh, thrust. But I actually, I'm not where exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'm changing that. I'm updating my propulsive maneuver calculation. And it's going to do that twice. It's going to do it at what we call its checkpoint when it's about 125 meters from the surface and its match point when it's about 55 meters from the surface. So it's basically a precision guidance system that we put onto the spacecraft. And what's the fuel in the, these engines? Uh, we're a monopropellant hydrazine system. So very uh, well-established kind of traditional spacecraft. We're drifting into the, uh, here we come, we're drifting in, now what? And then we'll be approaching the Nightingale site, and uh, there's a lot of great material there for us to collect. We've mapped out literally hundreds of particles, less than two centimeters, the kinds of things that we can pick up with our TAGSAM. TAGSAM is sample acquisition. What's TAGSAM? The touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism. And we'll make contact with the asteroid surface, with the TAGSAM filter, we expect that we'll be in contact with the asteroid for between 6 and 16 seconds. Uh, and wow. the time variation is, is how deep we sink uh, and whether the spacecraft senses that it made contact. So it has a couple ways to do that. One is on the TAGSAM robotic arm, which is about 3 meters long, there's a pogo spring. And if it hits a hard surface, that spring will compress and that'll trigger a micro switch. And it'll say, aha, I hit the surface. Now I'm in contact. That, that initiates open up the TAGSAM gas bottles and prepare to depart the asteroid. And three meters, this is a 10-foot-long pogo stick. That's right, yep, with a vacuum cleaner at the end of it. And, <laughs> or, and you've mapped the surface at this area to, you said, less than two centimeters, to like less, less than an inch. Yeah, 3.5 millimeters per pixel uh, resolution on our map of Nightingale. Wow. So this is a map of another world. At millimeter scale. So yes. how big is the spacecraft <laughs> relative to the crater? I mean, am, am I throwing darts at a dartboard? Am I throwing darts at a tennis court? Yeah, the spacecraft's about the size of a passenger van. And uh, we're trying to get into a spot that's about two parking spaces wide. So wow. this is, this is wow. the ultimate parking assist. On the other uh, side of the solar system. 
on the other side of the solar system. It, it blows my mind, even, even though I've been involved in the program for over a decade. It's also going to unpark it, right? After you land. That's right. The car Wait, so 16 air seconds. You just have 16 seconds for, for your That's whole at the collection most. time. It could be as little That's as six most. seconds. Yeah, and, and we prefer the six seconds, quite honestly. The 16 seconds means that it's sinking into the surface uh-huh. without triggering that switch. Or there's an accelerometer, which would also sense that the spacecraft's approach to the surface has been slowed due to contact. And so if neither one of those happens, the spacecraft's just going to time out. It's going to say, uh, 16 seconds have gone by when I thought I was going to hit the surface. Let's just get out of here. Let's fire the Tag-Sam gas bottle because we're probably deep. You know, that, that robotic arm, uh, after 16 seconds, it's, it's moving at 10 centimeters per second. It's sunk over a meter and a half into the surface of the asteroid. So it's, ha- it's up to its elbow in, in yeah. asteroid dirt. Uh, it's like, fire the gas bottle on Tag-Sam <laughs> and then let's get out of Dodge and see what happened. That's probably an unlikely scenario, but that's like the, you know, we, we, we designed a worst case scenarios on these programs. Science Rules will be right back. Saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards. We have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at You're listening to Science Rules. When are we going to do this, and when are we going to bring this stuff back? And when it comes back, where is it going? Cyrus Rex is going in to collect a sample from Bennu on October 20th, 2020. And That's coming it, right up, peoples. It's coming right up. It's go time for us. It's been a long time coming. And uh, immediately after that, we'll spend the next week assessing what happened and particularly determining how much material is in the TagSAM filter which is another amazing physics experiment because we have to come up with a mass estimate, except that we're in this crazy microgravity environment under which no scale could possibly make a measurement like we want to make. So we're actually measuring the change in the moment of inertia of the spacecraft before we get the sample and after we get the sample. And that's giving us about 10 gram precision on the TAG-SAM collected mass, remembering that our requirement is to pick up 60 grams of material. I'm imagining this uh, air filter gizmo, TAG-SAM, is on the end of this boom, and it's because it's so far from the center of mass of the spacecraft, you're going to get a little change in its rate at which it would twist. Exactly. Depending on the, so we have what we call reaction wheels, which are basically mechanical flywheels. Uh, when you spin that wheel in one direction, the spacecraft spins in the other direction due to conservation of momentum. So we'll see how much energy it takes to spin the spacecraft at a certain rate when the tag SAM is empty. And then we'll spin it at the same rate and see what the difference in the energy we had to give to those flywheels in order to make it achieve the rate that we saw before. And then the, the team, as you can imagine, does some crazy math to turn all of that information into a mass estimate of how much is in the tag sand. No, that's pretty cool. So uh, a momentum wheel or a reaction wheel is a gyroscope. Okay, what next? How does this, how does this come home? 
Yeah, so we got we got to hang around Bennu until March of 2021. It's just like we have a launch window, a very specific time period where we could leave the Earth and get on a trajectory to the asteroid. We have a departure window uh, to get to leave the asteroid and get back to the Earth. That departure window opens up in early March of 2021. It's pretty long. It's about two months. We can stay stick around all the way through May of 2021. In any case, we'll fire the main engines. Uh, and it's, this is another amazing piece of uh, planning and mathematics. We fire the engines once in March of 2021, and that sets us up on a ballistic trajectory that intersects the Earth on September 24th, 2023, uh, over two and a half years later. And those when the samples will drop down into the Utah test and training range. It's parachuting down? It's going to parachute in. It's coming in fast at 12.4 kilometers per second. Uh, so wow, it's, you it's guys, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty quick. <laughs> that's called coming in hot. Seven it's coming miles, in hot. About seven miles a second, I guess. That's right. Yeah, 28,000 miles an hour, I think, is what we're coming in at. Uh, so the heat shield will absorb most of that velocity. So it'll be you know, a rough ride early on. And then once it gets into free fall, the parachute deploys. There's actually two chutes, a drogue chute, which gives us a little bit more relief on the speed. And then the main chute pops out. And then it drifts down and makes contact with the Utah desert. Uh, we're waiting in helicopters. We're working with the uh, Air Force and with Stratcom, who are going to be tracking it on its way in. They'll tell us exactly where they think it landed. It's an Air Force range that we're coming into. Uh, we'll, we'll fly out. We'll package it up. There's a couple things we need to do. There's still some explosive devices that are armed that would release the parachute. There's a prime and a backup. We expect the backup devices will still be active. We'll have to make sure those are safe. The batteries will uh, be depassivated, and then we'll fly it to NASA's Johnson Space Center, where all of NASA's astro materials are curated, including Apollo samples, Antarctic meteorites, material of comet dust from VILT-2 from the Stardust mission. Uh, and then we open it up, and I would say it's Christmas in September for me and, and my other <laughs> cosmochemists around the world. So, okay, what, what do you anticipate learning? Like, why did we do this whole thing? Yeah, and we have a, an amazing sample analysis plan. We're going to learn all kinds of things. The number one objective is to go and understand the carbon chemistry. We want to look at the organic molecules, and we want to understand if objects like Bennu played a role in making Earth a habitable planet. So that means the water chemistry. We're going to go after the clay minerals and what's the state of the water. We're going to be able to map it to the composition of the Earth's oceans in terms of its isotopes. We look at the isotopes of oxygen and the isotopes of hydrogen, and which vary across the solar system and see if they match what we find in the Earth. And then we're going to be looking for key organic compounds that are components of biomolecules. We're going to be looking for amino acids, which make up our proteins. Wow. We're going to be looking for nucleic acids, which make up our DNA and RNA phosphates and sugars, which make up the backbone of DNA and RNA, lipids, which make up cell so walls. These are say, compounds you expect to find in the yeah. little rocks from this distant, distant asteroid that's been adrift in the solar system for 4.567 million years, billion years. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to what Corey was saying at the beginning, you know, where did we come from? This is the beginning of evolution, we think. This is how the seeds of life were brought to the surface of the Earth. That's our theory that we're testing with this mission, the origins right. and, and there's nothing special about this asteroid. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's special that we're there, but there's like a whole bunch of asteroids like it. This is common stuff out there. 
It's special in that we think it's it's carbon rich. Not all asteroids are carbon rich. So we particularly targeted Bennu because we suspected that there was a lot of carbon chemistry going on there. Typically, carbon is abundant in the outer solar system. You look at a place like Titan, right? It's got this massive methane atmosphere. That's a hydrocarbon. Uh, it's got liquid ethane oceans. So carbon's really abundant way out there. But in the inner solar system, it's really rare. Like the moon has almost no carbon on it. Is that because it's less dense or something? It, it condenses at low temperatures as ices primarily, like carbon dioxide ice or methane ice. And so when the solar system was forming, you had really hot stuff in the, in the inner part and cold stuff in the outer part. So that's why you have a lot of icy objects out at Jupiter and beyond and rocky stuff in the inner solar system. So you're saying asteroids like Bennu were like conveyor belts that were bringing yeah. the stuff of life to, to early Earth, maybe? Exactly. We think Bennu originally, its its parent, the thing that was shattered in the main asteroid belt, we think that must have formed beyond Jupiter. And so Bennu is kind of this uh, messenger. So we're looking at material from the dawn of the solar system that was capturing water ices and carbon-bearing ices, and then reacting to form this organic material. And then through a whole series of dynamical perturbations, it has marched in. First, it had to cross Jupiter's orbit, which is challenging to do. Then it got into the main asteroid belt. Then it got shattered. And then this fragment got pushed by the Yarkovsky effect into near-Earth space. And then these clever monkeys sent a spacecraft up to go grab a piece (laughs) of it to bring it back down to our surface to see if all of that is true or not. And so what it speaks to is the likelihood of life. That's right. Yeah, if, if something like Bennu has the seeds of life, that means they got delivered to Mars, they got delivered to Europa, they got delivered to Titan and Enceladus and Ganymede and Venus. So all of these places now, it becomes much more likely that at least life was possible on those places. Now, we don't know what happened on the Earth to take those simple molecules and arrange them into living organisms. That's, that's the next step in the, in the investigation to say, okay, how do you take this pile of ingredients and, and turn it into a cell that, that reproduces itself and, and kicks off biochemistry? There you go. But that means that Mars had the seeds and, and all these other places in the solar had them. And we don't think there's anything particularly special about our protoplanetary disk where this chemistry was happening. We see carbon dioxide, and we see methane, we see water in other star-forming regions. So that says the seeds of life are probably all over the place in the universe. And whatever happened on Earth, we'll be able to understand how likely it is that that happened somewhere else in our galaxy and somewhere else in the universe. Cool. So you got, got, where did we come from? And are we alone? All wrapped in one. What you're saying is what we're looking for is the origins of life. We're not out there mining platinum. That's right. Yeah, we're, we're driven by the origins investigation. It's the big O on OSIRIS-REx, right? That's what we're all about. But there's a lot of other reasons to study these near-Earth asteroids, like we talked about, the spectroscopy, the resources, the security. And we didn't get to the Rex part. Uh, the Rex is the regolith explorer. Regolith is the cool geology that's happening on these small bodies. The, we talked about the bulge at the equator and, and that kind of stuff. It's just fascinating physics and geology interacting with each other to create these shapes and, and these unique worlds. Well, we have physics and geology here on Earth. We're all one big science experiment in the cosmos. Corey, I hear something. It's a sound. It can't be in space. It's got to be on Earth, and it sounds like lightning. 
Dante, are you ready for lightning fast questions with lightning fast answers? Yep. All right, here we go. How realistic is the movie Armageddon? Uh, not at all. <laughs> On a scale of zero to 10, uh, it's a zero. So there you go. It's a zero, everybody. <laughs> if you could send a mission to any other celestial body, what would it be? What do you have in mind? What's next? I would do sample return from Mercury. Why Mercury? Ooh, nice one. Uh, it's one of the most unexplored worlds, and it holds some really intriguing clues about the formation of planets that we could unlock only with those samples. Plus, it's an awesome engineering challenge. <laughs> so along with not understanding much about Mercury, what is it we don't understand or misunderstand about asteroids? Uh, well, we don't understand the diversity of materials that are truly out there. Uh, we have our meteorite collection, but those appear to be very biased. Only the strongest stuff is surviving. Uh, and so there's probably a whole host of, of objects and materials that we need to get into our laboratories. Uh, and sample return is the way you do that. It has to be uh, robust enough and massive enough to get pulled in by the Earth's gravity, and then it has to make it to the ground. I see what you're right. saying. Okay, yeah. That's right. Okay, what's the coolest thing nobody knows about asteroids? You want them to know. I want everybody to know that asteroids are our nearest neighbors in space. They're the most accessible objects uh, for spacecraft missions, and the, the opportunities are unlimited out there in terms of science and uh, resource development. Did you ever want to be an astronaut? I always wanted to be an explorer. Came to space as the ultimate place to be an explorer. So if you were doing something other than cosmochemistry, what do you think you'd be doing? I think I'd be exploring the depths of the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're excited about a mission to Europa. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that'd be, that's fantastic. Yeah. So if you were king of the forest, if you could do something, what would you do? Yeah, we give you $100 billion and said, hey, go do something cool. What would you do? I would try to rally the people of the world to understand uh, the value of space exploration and uh, the benefits to us all as a society uh, and try to tamp down all of the conflicts that we have and, and recognize that we're all in this together. Absolutely. And, you know, there's nothing like cosmochemistry to remind us of that. We are all made of the same cosmic stuff. We are all made of stardust. We are all one thing. So thank you so much. Anytime. Our guest today has been Dr. Dante Loretta. He is, of course, the head of that mission of OSIRIS-REx and a professor of planetary science and cosmochemistry at the University of Arizona. And remember, when it comes to investigating the nooks and crannies of our solar system, science, science rules. rules. And if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out. helps other people learn about the show. It helps us find out what you want to hear about. So thank you. Be sure to check out my socials for more information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, and I hope you do, give us a call at 201 472 or submit your question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell. Casey Halford makes this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer here at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, Science, Science Rules. Rules. Stitcher. True or false? Walmart has eye care. True. 
Stop by Walmart to save and browse top designer frames right where you already shop. And they accept most insurance. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart.